reading from the scripture this morning will come from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, which will be on page 1015, 1015 in the Bibles found in the pews. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. We're thankful that you're here. It encourages us that you're here. And we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. We're thankful for the week that God has blessed us with this past week. Our young people, so many of them, investing their week to go to camp, the spiritual growth opportunity that that was. We're thankful for the baptisms and those that were restored and for all that hopefully all grew spiritually. We're thankful for our adults that invested their time to go and spend a week with our children, the investment of their life and their relationships on an ongoing basis. We're thankful for Philip Jenkins. What amazing blessing he and Laura are to the work here. And uh, all together, the youth are such an amazing resource. What would we be as a congregation uh, without our young people? Don't want to imagine that, but sure want to be grateful and thankful for it. A very nice looking, respectful looking lady goes into a pharmacy. She looks at the pharmacist and she says, I need to order some cyanide. His eyes were wide and he says, ma'am, what in the world do you want to do with that? And she said with a smile, I'd like to poison my husband. And he said, ma'am, you realize I can't have any part of that? Said my license would be taken away from me. In addition to that, I'd be thrown into prison and you would be thrown into prison. She very calmly reaches into her purse. She pulls out a photograph of her husband in a very nice restaurant with his wife. He shows it. He looks at it, surprised at first, and then says, well, you didn't tell me you had a prescription. You know, it's interesting to think about how well we understand the topic of fornication and adultery and to realize that there are eternal consequences, but there are also daily consequences. We're going to make our way back to where we're studying for several months here in 1 Corinthians, looking at the fact that the truth is we can't live in a problem-free world but we can look for God's solutions to all of our problems. And before we go there, I want us to go this morning to Proverbs, the sixth chapter. I'd like for us to read a few verses there and think about what a wise man, Solomon, was trying to teach and convince his son of understanding. We'll begin in just a moment in 23, but in verse 20, he says, My son, keep your father's command. And do not forsake the law of your mother. And then skipping down to 23, he says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction 
are the way of life. Do you see up to this point what he's saying? Up to this point what he's saying is he's saying, Son, I'm your father and I've taught you a way of righteousness. Your mother has taught you a way of righteousness. And what we want you to realize is that the law of God is like a lamp. You go out and walk into a dark path, what are you going to do? You're going to stumble. You're going to hurt yourself. And also, you're going to hurt other people. Well, what happens when we walk in the dark? All of you that have been camping this past week, you know that what you prefer is a flashlight. You prefer some way to light the path. And that's what here in the old scriptures called a lamp. It says, son, I want to give you a lamp so that you don't have to stumble. You don't have to fall. You don't have to bring these curses in your own life and in your actions be a curse to others. So what is he going to talk about? Now what we're about to read, he's talking to his son, so that's why the one that is in the wrong, if you will, this time is the woman. But this could be just as different if he would have been talking to his daughter. And so in your life, you apply it to whatever is, is appropriate to who you are. But look in verse 24. He says, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Now the life that's being spoken of here is no doubt referring to two things. One is eternal life, ultimately. But also, sexual immorality, Praise on the life of an individual throughout this life. Let's continue reading what he means by this. 27. You know, Proverbs is full of great illustrations that once you read it, you're like, wow, that makes sense. See if this makes sense. Here's what he compares it to in 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. So now he compares the thief and the way the thief, even though he's done wrong and will have to make recompense, he compares now to say, notice the adulterer. There will have to be a punishment. But how can an adulterer make recompense? Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. That's why we're reading this passage right now. Lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts." What is Solomon saying to his son? Let's capitalize for just a moment on that phrase where he says, son, if you're going to just waltz into adultery, you are not understanding. What is it that you don't understand? Number one, he would say, let's just take any of you that have been camping. 
And imagine the campfire and a huge log in that fire. Now, if any of you have ever hauled firewood, you know the way you haul a heavy log of firewood. You reach down and you pull it into your chest and you walk with it. If it's heavy, you don't hold it out here, unless maybe you're Ray Burchett, but you don't, you hold it in close and you walk with it. What is he saying? He says, you really think you're going to hold a burning piece of wood into your chest and you're not going to be burned. Adultery is going to bring wounds, destruction, and scars. Now, we're sometimes quick to say, oh, oh but now listen, let's, let's not make someone feel bad. All sin is sin, and sin is equal. Sin is a separation from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. But according to this passage, the way sin is viewed by others and the consequences of it, it's not equal. He even says here, he says a man goes out to steal, and he steals because he is starving. When he is caught, it is wrong, and he has to pay for the consequences of that. But other people will look at that and say, that's not dishonorable in the same way a man that goes out and steals another man's wife. You see, the man that steals to provide food for his very own stomach, he can make recompense. If someone steals $10 from you, what could they do to make it right? If they gave you back $10, you're back to where you started. A man steals your spouse from you. A woman steals your spouse from you. What can they do to make it right? They can't. They can be forgiven by God, and you should forgive them. But there is nothing that they can do while they are alive to make that wrong right. They can simply live a life of righteousness again. Adultery brings about scars and wounds and pain. Do you hear what Solomon is saying? He clearly is saying, Son, do you understand me? Now pause here for just a moment. Why is Solomon doing that? Is he doing that because he's strict and he doesn't like his son? Is he doing that because he wants his son to never have a good time? We know the answer to that. Solomon is saying this to his son because he loves him. And he wants his son to be blessed. And in that, he wants his son to be a blessing to others. Do you realize that what we are about to study in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, it's God's message through Paul to the people of Corinth. And what he's wanting to do is he's want, he wants the people to live a life where they can be blessed. And he wants them to be a blessing to others. He's not setting out to make life miserable. He's not setting out to make those that have been washed and sanctified and justified feel guilty. But he is setting out to make something very clear. Now that you've become a Christian, you can't go back to that same way of walking. Look back, if you will, to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. Look there again in verse 9, the text that's capably read just a moment ago. Notice how he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
When he says, do you not know, the reason he can say to this group of people, do you not know, which six or seven times in this one chapter he says that. In other words, he is saying to them, I know you know this. Or maybe he's even saying to them, I know you have known this in the past. Have you forgotten it now? Do I need to remind you of this now? Well, who was he writing to? If you have your Bible open, look at 1 Corinthians, the first chapter in verse 2. He's writing this to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. We see clearly who Paul is writing to. He's talking to those who are sanctified, those who were in the world, but not anymore. They have been set apart from the world, sanctified. They are saints. They're living under the reign of the king. Kingdom living is where they're living. And so now he says, I'm talking to you. You should know this. It would be true of their day, and it would definitely be true of our day. We could go out and state this very message to our neighbors and to the world around us right here in Mount Julia, and the majority of people are going to say, no, I don't know that. Statistically, if you're 32 years or under right now of age, your generation by far believes that there is absolutely nothing wrong with cohabitating. As a matter of fact, it is an honorable thing to go through a cohabitation before you marry to see if you want to be married or to just cohabitate and not marry at all. That's considered very honorable. Now let's pause there. To the world. See, that will never be honored by God. And so what I'm saying to you is, this message is not for us to go to work tomorrow, to go among our friends tomorrow, and verbally beat them up. What did 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter and verse 10 say? 1 Corinthians 5 and 10 says, we're always going to have fornicators around us. If you didn't want to live in a world that embraces fornication, adultery, homosexuality, find another planet to live on. Now, it doesn't say it exactly that way in 1 Corinthians 5 and 10, but that's what it says. And so he's not saying, Christians, I want you to go out and I want you to be mean-spirited. I want you to look down upon and criticize and rebuke everybody you see around you that's living an immoral life. No, that's not the message at all. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. And to the brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, listen, we never live by the world standard. It's fleshly. It's carnal, it's impulsive. We live by a standard that has come from God. It's spiritual. It's self-controlled. It reflects God and the fruit of the Spirit. Now with that in mind, notice even in this verse 9, he gives a category of the unrighteous. And notice what the unrighteous are not going to enjoy. They're not going to enjoy an inheritance with the saints. An inheritance into the kingdom of God. Now, I don't guess that would surprise many people out in the world. Because they have no relationship with God. They don't live for the kingdom. They don't live a sanctified life. The Lord is not the Lord of their life. But the truth is... I don't know all the world's understandings and all their beliefs. And again, that's not what this lesson is about. This lesson is about us, saints, 
children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, the ones that say, I want kingdom living to describe my life. I want to live for the master. What about for those? For those we have a clear understanding. We can't go back to the, the world we left and expect to inherit the same inheritance of those who are staying in that world. We either stay here and receive the inheritance or we leave the world and we leave that inheritance. Now, as I was writing this lesson this week, something dawned on me. It's really been several weeks. We've been talking about kingdom living all year. And it's really been several weeks since we've talked specifically about the kingdom. And so if you'll give me four or five minutes here, and if you want to turn to the passages, or if you'd rather just read them on the screen, I want to remind you of some of these kingdom passages just so you can see this and be reminded of this. There is a major difference in living in the kingdom and living in the world. And, and this morning, if you're tempted to try to be living with a foot in both places, this is a lesson to just kind of be a wake-up call to say you can't do it. Or if, if you are convincing yourself that you're living in the kingdom, but the fact is you're allowing these things to creep in your life. There are ways of the world. It's a wake-up call to say, that's not kingdom living. So let's listen to some of the things the Lord would say about the kingdom. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Mark the first chapter. Let's look at verse 14. Mark 1 verse 14, after John, that's John the Baptist, was put into prison. Jesus came to Galilee, and what did he preach? He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ comes where? Into the world. And what does he do? I want to preach a gospel that tells you, come as you are. You're just fine as you are. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to repent. You don't have to be converted. We like you just the way you are. He didn't preach that. He said, I love you. I love you enough I'd die for you. But I'm going to give you a gospel, which, by the way, is good news. But it's going to require you to repent. You're going to have to turn. You're going to have to change from who you are and be transformed. You're going to have to become a new creation. Old things, all those old things are passed away. Everything about your life is going to become new. Even the way you view sexual immorality and your purity. It's all going to be changed because no more thinking like the world and calling yourself a saint. Let's look as we go over into Matthew, the 18th chapter. Notice how he views it here. Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that word converted mean? Converted means to turn. It means to change. It is the idea of turning from the world and becoming like the Lord. And he says, unless you're converted, you can't become a part of the kingdom of heaven. Notice, this kingdom is not about the geography. It's not about, well, which continent is it on? Which nation is it in? It's, it's not, oh, is it the holy lands in Jerusalem now? That's not at all about what the Lord's kingdom is. The Lord's kingdom is about who is reigning in your life. If the Lord is reigning in your life, He is king of your life and you're part of the kingdom. And so here He's saying you can become converted. Well, who would be converted? Notice that last verse we read in verse 4. The only ones that would be converted are those who would be humble. All right, Lord, I won't do it my way. I'll humble myself and submit myself to your way. 
Luke the ninth chapter, how long is this supposed to last? Luke the ninth chapter, verse 62, we have this, this short but powerful teaching. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, once we have left the world and we have repented and we have been converted and we have been saved and our sins have been washed away and we are living by a different standard, not flesh ruling and reigning over our life, but God ruling and reigning over our life, can we then kind of live with a foot in both worlds? You remember when Lot's wife left Sodom and Gomorrah? The place that was so sexually immoral that when two of God's men went into that place, that men of every age beat on the doors and the walls of that house demanding that those individuals come out so that they could carnally know them. And you remember God was going to deliver Lot and his family from that place. But do you remember the command he gave? When you leave, don't what? Don't look back. No man having put in his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. What is it that she loved so much that was back there that she couldn't help but look back? We make a major decision when we decide to be a part of the kingdom. We make a major decision that is life and eternally life changing. I'd like to read to you one more, and you're familiar with this one, surely. Colossians, the first chapter, and verse 13. We've studied this so many times at the beginning of this year. Notice what he says, talking about Jesus when he says, He has delivered us. That's the only way we can be sanctified. It's not because all of a sudden we work ourselves into some great state of righteousness. It's only because of God's grace and His forgiveness. He has delivered us from what? The power of darkness. And He has what? Conveyed us into what? The kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. How do we get out of this world? It's only because one came in that could rescue us and he delivered us out of the world to what? To the kingdom. And once we arrive in the kingdom, what does Paul tell us in our passage that we're studying today in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter and 9 and 10? He begins by saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, you become a part of this kingdom. You know this. What are you thinking now going back to this? Do you love God? Do you love His church? Do you love your own soul? Don't you know you can't inherit the kingdom doing this? Now notice the next part of that. He says, do not be deceived. And then he lists fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. In that verse, it's pretty much sexual sins. But then we come over to verse 10 and there are other immoral sins that he lists. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. And then he closes with that very same thing. You see, it's not me emphasizing this this morning. It is Paul emphasizing this. In this one short paragraph, he begins by saying, you know you can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
and doing these things. And then he turns right around and lists them and closes again by saying, nor will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But did you notice that phrase before he listed those sins? Be not deceived. Oh, Satan can lie and lie convincingly. Satan can convince us that whatever our fleshly nature is feeling at the moment is right when it's wrong. He can convince us to listen to people and to things and to philosophies and convince us that they're good to listen to when they're not. And so he says, be not deceived. Look, the world is always going to have a different message from what the Lord is speaking about, about everything, but especially about this topic we're studying this morning. When we think about fornication and what was said in that day and time and what so often is said even in today's time, how many times do we hear today something along this line? It's my body and I'll do what I want to do with my body. I want to tell you something. I understand that. If I were not a saint living in a world of sanctification, being sanctified by God, saying, Lord, I, I want you to rule my life. If I did not have that aim and that purpose and that knowledge in my mind, I get this one. Who rules the world? Well, ultimately, Satan does, but how does he do it? He does it primarily by convincing people that they're ruling themselves. Most people out in the world think they're doing everything they want to do. And so what, what's interesting is it goes right along with it. They get up every day and they lead their life the way they want to lead it. What about people over here? They get up every day and according to Galatians 5, they lead their life by the Spirit of God. Big difference. Over here, you're led by the flesh. You're led by the carnal natures. You're led by impulses. So it makes sense when someone says, wait a minute, you're going to come into my private life and you're going to tell me how to live? Forget you. It's my life. It's my body. I'll do whatever I want with it. But this morning, we're not speaking to the world. It's a big difference because those that are living a sanctified life, there's a very, very clear teaching. And I just want to make sure that we all know this teaching before we leave here this morning. If you will, look here in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, and let's look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body, which by the way, the word body is used so many times, beginning at verse 12 through verse 20, that it is obvious that Paul wanted to place the emphasis on the body. Now, as we do that, please do not confuse that with the term flesh. The body was created by God. The body is wonderful. The body is, has a divine origin. And so a lot of the time when he's describing the carnal or the sinful nature, he says the flesh. But don't confuse flesh and body here because they're not used as synonyms here. He's talking about the body as something wonderful, something that's God's creation. It houses our soul. It's you, your body and soul. And so keep that in mind as he says in 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own. 
We get it. And when we shrug our shoulders and say, why doesn't the world get it? You get it, don't you? The reason the world doesn't get it is because it's not true. There's not anybody living out in the midst of the world that can say, God owns me. I have surrendered my life and he is the master of my body. Nobody in the world can say that because it's not true in the world. When you and I were saved, we laid down all of our being before God. And a part of our being is our body. And so he makes reference, strong reference, strong direct reference to this here. As he says, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's dwelling in you. You're not your own. Well, how can you not be your own? Look at 20. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We've been bought. What are we supposed to do? Now this body does not belong to us. If it belonged to us, you could do whatever you wanted to do to glorify your body. What, and, and I don't want to narrow this down just to this, so please don't think this is all, the only point that's being made, but think about it. When, when people, whether it's a man or a woman that dresses immodestly, what are they typically doing? Typically, they're trying to glorify their body. Look, if you're living out in the world, it's your body. Do what you want to do with it. Now, we can make moral arguments, but the fact is, they don't have the Lord leading their life. They, they set their own standards, which is also interesting to study how almost every civilization has some kind of standards that they, they embark upon, uh, that they apply to themselves. Like in, in America today, we've seen just in the last 10, 15 years, the standard change shifts significantly with homosexuality. And, and, and then we... You know, that's accepted, of course, today. But what about incest? You may not be aware of this, but back about 15, 20 years ago, there was a testing of the waters in America to see if pedophilia would be accepted. There were some magazine articles and some novels and things that were written back in the 80s that was a testing of the waters, and it did not give the rise to pedophilia that if it were put out today, those magazines would be shut down. What they did is they tested the waters. America's was at a different place. Uh, they weren't keenly aware of what was, being, what was happening and those waters floated for a little while and finally they realized, okay, this isn't going to fly and that was put back in the black market, if you will. Why? Who created that standard? You see what we're talking about here? It's just man's standard. In America, some way, men's thinking has said pedophilia, incest is wrong, but now homosexuality is not. All I'm trying to get you to see is man has set those standards. The world today is not saying incest is wrong because God said it was wrong. So it's, it, it will change. To some degree, it will. You know, the, the idea of one man and one woman or one woman and one woman and one man and one woman... You know what I mean. The, the, the world, right now, that's what's being argued in, in same-sex marriage. That's what's being argued right now. But you realize it will change, and the reason it will change is because there is no standard out there in the world. It's just whatever can we float and get by with in our society. And so sometime over the next five or ten years, 
we'll see the idea of, of group marriages being floated, and then the idea will be, will America as a nation accept that or not? Will we squish it? Will we exalt it? Will you'll see incest being floated a little bit here and there. You'll see pedophilia being floated again. It'll probably start with older. It'll probably start with 15, 16 year olds, and it'll try to work its way down. It's already big time in pornography. And, and so as pornography is accepted, then the idea of, okay, teenage pornography is not really that bad, and then it'll get younger, and you say, all oh, that'll never happen. What are you drinking? It's going to happen. Because why? There is no standard out there. There is no standard in the world except what does the world get together and buy their votes, buy their money, buy what they purchase or don't purchase, buy their lawsuits, etc. What do they vote for? Listen. You and I can't control this world we live in. And you know what? God never commanded us to control the world we live in. But what he did do is he says, I'm going to establish a church. And that church is going to be a part of my kingdom. And you are going to control what goes on there. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 was about. You want to bring incest? into my kingdom on the earth, 1 Corinthians 5, we're not tolerating it. You put out the sinner, you hope he repents, you hope he comes back, but a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You want to go out and practice fornication and say, hey, it's not a big deal anymore. Well, no, it's not in the world a big deal anymore. Matter of fact, the majority believe it's okay. But it will never be okay in the Lord's kingdom. Adultery will never be okay in the Lord's kingdom. Homosexuality will never be okay in the Lord's kingdom. Why? Because we are to use our bodies to glorify the Creator and the Creator has stated how our bodies are to be used in a Remember who's not going to inherit? The unrighteous or not? The Creator has told us how to use our bodies in a righteous way so that we can stand in the eyes of God on the day of judgment or just in daily living. We can stand before God and because of God's grace, because of Christ's power and His blood working in us, we can be considered by God righteous people. And that's not a light statement. That is huge. That's blessed. That's eternal. This morning I want us to close by going to a passage that you probably know very well, but I do not know of a better passage we could go to right now to study this topic, using our bodies to glorify God and the way He says. We'll read this and we'll close uh, with just a quick comment after this. Look at Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Maybe you know this many times and so you're about to check out. I'm asking you, don't check out on this. I want you to see this in light of what we've just studied in 1 Corinthians 6 where you're not your own. Your body is the temple of God. Why? You've been bought with a price. Think about that as you read this. I'm not saying that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is only talking about sexual matters. I'm not saying that. But if there's any verse that, that teaches us clearly the principles that relate to this, yes, this is a powerful verse. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's the only hope we have. If we don't have God's mercy, we don't have a kingdom to talk about. We can't be kingdom people. It's only by the mercy of God because we at one time were back here in this darkness 
And the only hope we have is the mercy of God that we do what? You present your what? Bodies. Not your, not your flesh. He's not talking about your sinful nature. He's talking about what he's given you. What are you going to do with who you are? Your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Let's pause there for just a moment. Many of us know that in the Old Testament, that they would bring animal sacrifice. You bring a lamb and someone say, hey, what, what are you doing with that lamb? This is my sacrifice to God. Oh, it looks dead. Yes, we slay our lambs and, and, and we lay them on an altar. That's my sacrifice to God. What, what are you doing with that heifer, that ram? This is my sacrifice to God. What are you doing with that wheat, that barley, that oil, that wine? What are you doing? This is my sacrifice to God. We come under the new covenant. Someone looks around and says, I need to find some animals. And Paul says, no, no, no. You don't need animals anymore. Under this new covenant, you do need a sacrifice. But the sacrifice you bring under this new covenant, it's your body. Ooh, do I slay it? No. It's living. Your living body. You bring your body every day to God in sacrifice to Him. See, you've given it. It's a gift on the altar. You don't own it anymore. It's been purchased by the great high priest. It's his. And so now we are in stewardship, if you will, of this body. It's not mine. It's not yours if you're a child of God. It's God's body. And every day we use it what? To glorify him. God, how do you want your body to be used today to glorify you? And what a beautiful thought that is. But the only way that can happen is we have to leave the world. And we have to leave the world's mentality about our body and the world's standard about what can and can't be done morally. That's why he says in the 12th chapter in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. It's the idea of shape, styled by the world. But what? But be transformed. We have become something different by the mercy of God. And notice this. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How's that going to happen? The mind. Conversion. We studied the earlier part of this lesson. Repentance. The change that begins in the mind. Everything first has to shift in the mind. When I'm in the depths of the world and someone comes up and talks to me about sexual purity, I'm going to tell you it's my body and it's my life and I don't want you to tell me anything. But you know what? If you start teaching my mind about Jesus, I'm going to start learning things that I've never learned before. And I'm going to have a much higher motive than I've ever had before. And when the mind is converted... People then bring that changed and renewed mind in a body that says, Lord, here I am. You notice verse 1 there? I want to bring my body how? Holy. Not in the world, sanctified. That's what holy means. Holy, acceptable. Not acceptable to the world. It does not even have to be acceptable to me. God... You tell me how you want me to live and I will live wholly acceptable to you. And someone says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean the Lord is going to tell me how to live my personal life? And don't you love that last phrase he tacks on in verse 1? Which is your reasonable service. 
I'm asking you what you're capable of doing. There's probably at least one, if not many, here this morning that maybe you're hearing this lesson and you literally may be thinking, you mean that God expects us not to have sexual relations with anybody other than our spouse as long as we live? Where, where does that come from? I've never heard that in my life. Can I just plant a seed of thought in you that something beautiful? God made us and He knows what we're capable of. And God did not make us to be animals. But the world convinces us that we are. That we don't have willpower. We can't control ourselves. We are just given to every impulse and, and at anybody's tempting call around us, we just fold and we just give in. And God knows you. And He knows what you're capable of. He knows that through His power and through His strength that we can stand with Him and we can overcome. And so a beautiful news as we close, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you. That comes right after that list of all those sins. He's looking at the church at Corinth and he says, sitting in this place right here, he's looking at Corinth, he says, sitting in this place right here, former adulterers, former fornicators, former homosexuals, former sodomites. Listen, they're all here. But he says, past tense, such were some of you. And notice the only hope we have, he uses but three times, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's hope. But that hope comes only in being washed. It comes only in being sanctified. It comes only in being justified by God. Jesus Christ to God through the Spirit. It's what I learned today. Number one, the consequences for fornication creates wounds and destructions and leaves scars like a burn victim suffers. Number two, I learned the greatest loss is eternal. Number three, it's very easy to be deceived about this. We must look through the lies to know how to present our bodies to God. Thank God we don't have to leave this earth that way. We don't have to leave saying that's what I am. Instead, we can leave saying that's what I was. But now, I've been redeemed. This morning, if you're ready to be sanctified, you're ready to be immersed in